Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Tanya Smith, and I am a pharmacist at Emory University Hospital Midtown in Atlanta, Georgia. Today, we will be chatting with Jordan McPherson, who is a clinical pharmacist at the Huntsman Cancer Institute in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today's episode is part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners. This episode is supported by an independent medical education grant from Merck, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, and Sanofi Genzyme. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Additional activities on this topic are available at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash manage IRAE. Thanks for joining us today. Let's start talking about today's topic, IRAE potpourri, a little bit of this and that for anyone and everyone. Jordan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tanya. So I am going to just lead us through a discussion that is a little bit of potpourri. So different topics related to IRAEs and management as a follow-up to our presentation. So really just to, to get us started and get everyone ready to talk about this very large topic, I wanted to get your insight into some of the things that a pharmacist should know about IRAEs, and I would say specifically non-oncology pharmacists. I will, I'll give you a couple that come to mind for me, but I would love to hear your thoughts too. So one of the things that I think is most important for anybody, and this is not just pharmacists, but also physicians, other healthcare providers, nurses to know is that you can blame immunotherapy for up to a year after a patient has received it for side effects and IRAEs. It's a very long time frame that requires a lot of monitoring and follow-up, but they can happen up to a year out. And then one of the other key things that I would want pharmacists, non-oncology pharmacists to know is that NCCN guidelines and several other guidelines are available as resources. And they these give a framework for how to approach and manage these patients. It's important to know though, and you would know this better than anyone as a member of the NCCN panel, that these guidelines are black and white. And typically our patients are not always as straightforward as the guidelines would suggest they might be. So anything else that you would think is important for a pharmacist to know about IRAE management? Yeah, yeah. I mean, looking at things from a non-oncology perspective, I think is really fascinating because, you know, it's tough for us to be tough for myself to think from that perspective. You know, it's like asking me to unlearn something. But I think looking at it from somebody that didn't have experience with immunotherapy, it's from my perspective, the guidelines are great at helping someone work through the process of ruling out other things and helping us get to that conclusion. But, you know, one of the limitations, if you ever go through the NCCN guidelines is that you kind of, they're structured in such a way that at the beginning of each slide, it's almost like you have the diagnosis already. And the fascinating thing to think about that is that, you know, you don't know for sure, but you can't rule it out. 
And so I think that there's kind of part of all of these things that we talk about with IRAEs where they are diagnoses of exclusion, but there's not really a test or anything that we could do to completely rule out the possibility. And, and so I think saying a rule out or acting like there would be a definitive way to say this is not it is not always what we have, you know, and it's actually probably more so more commonly the case where we don't know for sure, but you're trying to say, well, maybe there's something that's more likely, but you know, I, I think a great example is a patient. We've had several patients that we've seen that have had frequent diarrhea, had suspected cases of colitis where first thing we do is check a C. diff. But it's that smoking gun mentality where, oh, see, this is positive. That's got to be it, where we can get ourselves in trouble. And I've had patients where, you know, they had both. They had C. diff that, you know, maybe it was related. Maybe it was just a past colonization on a PCR, you know, but the patient didn't end up improving on treatment for C. diff. And then we found out that maybe there was inflammatory colitis from immunotherapy going on as well. So I think from a non-oncology perspective, I think it's frustratingly enough one of those things where you're never going to have a straight answer. And so you should always consider it a possibility. That's probably the most important thing I think of. I'm glad that you said some of these things because it leads nicely into my next question, which is how do we decide who gets what and how much of that medication? And I'll give you a couple of thoughts to think about. So with steroids, if you open up the guidelines, which I'm sure you have uh, many times, you will see that on most pages, the recommendations are methylprednisolone or prednisone or equivalent one to two milligrams per kilogram per day. So there's a lot of ambiguity there. There is a wide range. Methylprednisolone and prednisone are not equivalent one-to-one. And so how do you choose when you have that line? My general approach is to be a bit more aggressive up front because for some of the IRAEs, The guidelines will say, if steroid refractory or no improvement after three days, consider adding mycophenolate, for example. So if someone has been on a low dose of a less potent steroid, can I say that patient is truly steroid refractory? I don't know. And typically the inpatients I'm seeing are grades three and four. And so they need that more aggressive management. So that's generally my approach is to be more aggressive, to go on the higher end of that dosing spectrum. But I'm wondering if you if you would do anything differently or if you have other opinions, thoughts on that. No, you're right. I mean, I think that that's part of the reason. I think, you know, you get providers and others that are hesitant to use steroids. And so they say, oh, well, well, let's just do a half mig per kilo. And then you get into these binds where you're like, well, did the patient just not get enough steroid? Did they, you know? And so unfortunately, I think there is a lot of that. If you choose a half milligram per kilo, instead of going big, you know, you, you get yourself in this bind and the decision on whether or not an IRAE is truly steroid refractory or not. And so, yeah, for me, I do the same thing. Usually if it's, um, if it's a lower grade thing, which we see more in the outpatient realm, yeah, I'm going to be more prone to give a half milligram per kilo, but if it's something that's grade three, you know, or higher and, and often something that's even a consistent or persistent grade two, we go big or go home. Uh, if you're not going to invest or you're, if you're not going to commit enough to do a mid curricula, you're probably not confident enough to be using them in the first place. And one pushback I sometimes get from my providers is, well, that's a lot of prednisone. Again, especially outside of the oncology realm where I'm, I'm working with hospitalists and internists is this is, you know, hundred milligrams a day of prednisone is a lot. Are we sure we want to start that? 
yes, I know it's a lot. It's, but it's what our, our guidelines recommend, what we've studied, what we know, what we know works in most cases. And so I tend to still advocate for those higher doses, but for patients who are having side effects, that's when I would say, maybe let's back off and see if they are still continuing to improve on the lower dose. And sometimes that's happened where we, we do have to back down, but that's also often a trigger to start considering those steroid sparing therapies. Yeah. You know, and and I agree. I think that in my experience, at least it's more important that you, you start in a, a, and and it's, I think that that's not a foreign concept to a lot of pharmacists, at least the ones that probably be listening to this is that a lot of steroid early on is likely a lot of steroid over faster, right? You, you, You don't have to taper as much as long as you've got a large dose to begin with. And and so I think that hesitance to start big and get that immediate T cell suppression is, is um, people are hesitant to do that, but that's the important thing. You got, you got to get the adequate T cell suppression, or then you're, you're not, you're not sure whether or not it's just that you didn't have enough. And so, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think I've been in the same predicament with providers that have wanted to speed up a taper too quickly. And, you know, we talked a bit about like the art of steroid tapering and your portion of the presentation, Tanya. And yeah, you just, you have to be, I think some key principles are go big or go home and then take your time. You know, you want to be deliberate and not tapering too quickly, but also not tapering too slowly. There is a, f- a fine medium, even though it's not a perfect science. I think that there is a balance that that is is to be had there. And one more thing I'll say about guidelines, and then I'd like to continue on this same topic related to steroids and management, especially for severe IRAEs. One thing I want to add about the guidelines is that they are still ultimately guidelines and may not encompass everything that's currently in the literature. So I remember uh, a patient you and I both took care of that we actually gave antithymocyte globulin to, which is still not really present in the guidelines except for myocarditis, I believe. And so that was that was actually for a case of hepatitis from immunotherapy. And the only way that we knew that was from scouring the primary literature for it. So I'd also like to highlight the importance of that. And that's not something you have to be a specialist to do. We have great training in drug information and literature searching, literature evaluation. And so I want everybody to keep that in the back of your mind too. When you are wondering what to do for your patients, remember that the literature is also a resource that's available to you. Yeah. And I think you're highlighting one really important thing, even especially for the non-oncologists that we're kind of focusing on in this, this podcast, but that we've already got the skills in place to assist, even if immunotherapy is not something familiar, if IRAEs are not something familiar, we are generally viewed as the people that are the fastest to get to the root of a problem or an answer that is up to date and accurate. And so, you know, I encourage pharmacists. I know this is definitely something that's out of the realm of comfort for a lot of people, but we've tried to make this more accessible for um, you as well and encourage you to dig, but you've already got everything you need. Often I am digging into the primary literature. I am seeing what's new because the realm of immunotherapy toxicity management is changing so fast. We have new case series, new reviews, new um, case reports that are coming out all the time. And I always am trying to see how have others dealt with this problem? How And it's not always cut and dry. In fact, more often than not, it's, it, it is not cut and dry. And 
just kind of encouraging people that these are the same literature sources that the guidelines in this case are are built from is taking the sum of that and trying to tease out what the essentials are and what we we know best. Also a shameless plug for anyone out there dealing with those severe and refractory IRAEs. We need you to publish what you're doing. We need all of the data we can get to help us in that decision making. It's one of those examples where a case report goes a long way. Yep, exactly. Okay, Jordan. So we're in the winter now. And being in Utah, you and I both have had this experience where it starts snowing and it keeps snowing and it keeps snowing. And your patient who sees your oncologist who lives in the middle of Montana can't get to Huntsman and goes to the local hospital because he's worried he's having an IRAE. So while we are looking out the windows, admiring all that fresh pal that we're getting ready to ski on, your patient's worried about this, gets admitted, and they call, can't transfer the patient because all the planes are grounded. This is a little bit of an extreme, dramatized for educational purposes. But what would you say or how would you advise the providers at that rural institution who may not have the specialty expertise that you have at your cancer center. This is actually a question that came up in our presentation that we didn't get to address. And so I would really love to hear how you would guide that team and how to manage that patient for a grade three or four IRAE that they are unfamiliar with managing. Yeah. And, you know, that's a, such a good question. I, I think it's not as extreme as you'd think. I mean, you know, the Huntsman, at least where we, uh, I practiced in Salt Lake services, a, a large uh, rural area. I think it's a seven state intermountain West region where a lot of our patients have to drive upwards of four or five hours to get to Huntsman to get the care they need. And so we're often put in these predicaments of what do you do with a patient who's starting to have a severe IRAE in a rural setting? And so it requires collaboration. That's why I think these talks are so important is because, you know, people who are non-oncology don't recognize the role they play until it's really important that they play a role. And I think making sure that you make providers aware. So from my perspective, I'm always trying to think of how can I assist a rural provider in making sure this, that our patient gets the care they need? Because often they already have some kind of relationship with the local hospital. So maybe there's not an oncologist there, but you know, they know the center, they know where it is, they can get to it. So it's just working with maybe an ER provider telling a patient, hey, here's our number. Here's, you know, we would love for the ER providers to call us and get some guidance um, to improve that awareness. I think these kind of things where we're talking about that will help. But, you know, I've had patients that have, you know, developed type one diabetes and we have not been able to get them in fast enough here and had to do some rural diabetes management, trying to get them started on insulin um, from the ER or even outside of the ER. You know, ideally you, you recognize these high blood glucoses, but patients with colitis that didn't have a stool collection kit and are in a rural state, right? So we often will provide our patients now with stool collection kits because we don't want that to be an impediment to them getting an adequate lab workup for their fecal calprotectin, their lactoferrin, all of the infectious workup, because that would then delay us getting them steroids, right? For a life-threatening IRAE. So there's lots of things that I think if we realized how important the patient is as a team member in their own care, that we would say, hey, maybe I can set a patient better up for success 
And I think all of it boils down to communication and access. And I think I'm always open to talking to, I've many, many times been on the phone with an internal medicine doc locally in a rural setting or an ER doc trying to explain what's happening. (laughs) And, and, you know, I think Mm -hmm. that goes a long way. I, I like that you highlighted something you've done and I didn't even know that you did that. Kudos to you, you know, empowering patients with, with kits and with tools that goes back to the education pieces and not just giving patients information, but actually equipping them with tools and with knowledge to be a participant in their own care. I think that's a, that's a really great, a great thing that you do. And I think it's, this also highlights the importance even of our networks as pharmacists. I've received phone calls from pharmacists who trained at, I remember this one specific uh, phone call I got from a pharmacist who trained a huntsman and was working in a rural hospital in the Mountain West and called asking for me to send our blue carpidase toxicity protocol. And that's just something also good to keep in mind, I think. Remember, remember your network and the power of your network, because when you're managing something that's rare and challenging, it doesn't matter what your role on the team is. Everybody has a part to play. Right. And I think that's especially true. Right. Exactly. Especially true in those, those rural areas. So I want to switch gears just a little bit and maybe get a little bit more philosophical, but you and I have talked about this several times. So now we just get to have this conversation again in front of others. But I want to hear about a clinical scenario related to IRAE management that taught you something or several things. And what those things taught you, I'll share an example too, but I'd love love for you to share an impactful or informational experience that you had from IRAE management. Yeah. So, uh, you know, one that jumps out or a couple that jump out to me both have to do with the same IRAE and, and it was two different patients, but kind of some key things I learned from them. But, uh, you know, with hypophysitis, hypophysitis is again, referring to inflammation of the pituitary glands that, you know, ultimately leads to failure of that pituitary gland that's generally irreversible, right? And permanent. And it's easy, I think, for us to always jump to conclusions. There was a patient I had that was exhausted, you know, had all the kind of hallmarks, signs, symptoms of uh, pituitary failure and from the sense of of a mass effect symptom. So she had severe headaches, light sensitivity, but also was experiencing fatigue. And so she got admitted and we did a, a pituitary workup, an endocrine workup, and she didn't have any evidence of, of endocrine failure at all. And so, you know, there was that moment where you're like, man, I, I thought we had this nailed and we, you know, everything was wor- negative. The patient ended up going home. And then a week later, it ended up that she had the same symptoms. She was admitted with an adrenal crisis and she had all the biochemical evidence of pituitary inflammation. And so there was that moment where I was like, man, I thought we had this nailed. We didn't ended up being exactly what we thought it was, but didn't end up happening in the order that we thought it would. Right. And so I think there's lots of room for us to just kind of say, well, you know what? Sometimes these things don't happen in any certain order. And there's, you got to kind of keep an open mind, even if you're right, it may not look like you're right off the bat, but you got to kind of just keep an open mind to that. There's another, another patient with the same disorder that had diagnosed pituitary inflammation, hypophysitis, but had never, it was not, not doing well. 
And so I went to talk to her about the pituitary inflammation. This was several years back before we really were consistently educating all patients. And she had not, even though she had made it all the way to the endocrinologist level, she had not been adequately told like what was happening and whether or not this was permanent. And so her endocrinologist actually was trying to taper the um, hydrocortisone for a likely permanent thing. And she was feeling awful. So I just sat down with her. I was like, I tried to explain exactly what was happening. And she, after that conversation was like, that makes all the sense in the world. Like you're the first person to actually have sat down and talked to me about what was really happening that I probably am going to be on hydrocortisone for the rest of my life. And I just, I found it fascinating that it had gotten all the way through all of these levels of, you know, identification, referral to a specialist and on back to us. And, and yet she still didn't have basic kind of understanding what was happening. And I feel like that kind of highlights the, the failures I think we have sometimes in making sure that not only are we getting the referrals we need, suspecting the things we need to, but making sure that patients are kind of informed along the way as to what's going on. It's great that you're able to identify that that patient needed that and had not been given that and that you were able to do that for her. I think it highlights the patient focus of this whole topic and what we really wanted to get at with this entire series, but also how pharmacists play a role as a member of the team, educating patients and in talking with patients and even beyond that, caring for them as whole human beings and being transparent and communicative with them. So that's a, a wonderful gift that you were able to give that patient. There are a couple of patients that come to mind for me, the two that come to mind that were most instructional were both with hepatitis and unfortunately neither ended well. One, actually, this patient experienced grade four hepatitis from one dose of pembrolizumab. So that's not terribly common. I can't give you a specific number but or incidence, but that's having the, the degree of hepatitis after one dose uh, was it's pretty profound. And what that interaction taught me was, it was a few things. There were a few things. So this patient, it was one of the last things that she, that hospitalization was one of the last things she experienced at the end of her life. And I realized the importance of a pharmacist in decision-making. I was very involved in the decision-making process for what immunosuppressant we ultimately gave her. But it also, after the fact, made me wish that I had advocated more for palliative care and symptom management for her and making sure her goals were clarified before we even made that decision to make sure that if things didn't go well, she truly wanted, you know, was willing to be in the hospital and potentially pass away in the hospital and spend some of the last days of her life there. And so it reminded me how important it is that we bring that up and bring that to the attention of our providers when we can see things that maybe other people can't because they're focused on just fixing a problem. And then the other patient with hepatitis that stood out to me was a patient who was admitted for, actually admitted for recurrent hepatitis after getting ATG for a first incidence of hepatitis. And then the second time got admitted for more ATG thinking it was recurrent and it actually ended up being a new primary pancreatic cancer. And what that experience taught me was the importance of involving our consultants and advocating for consultant involvement before we begin therapy. You know, we do want to initiate therapy ASAP 
to ensure best outcomes, but at the same time, it's important to make sure our consultants are involved in helping us evaluate and appropriately diagnose our patients so that we're choosing the best therapies for them. Yeah. And I think you highlight a great you know, example because you know, these patients are so complicated and you know, like we were talking about earlier, it's difficult to ever rule out anything. Sometimes it's even more challenging when you've got overlapping causes that, you know, saying that something is refractory or not, it, it really makes it challenging. So I think it is kind of incumbent on all of us to say we're in this together, you know, no matter where you are, I think if you recognize the fact that you're not comfortable with this, reaching out to a center that maybe is more comfortable and getting guidance on a case is not kind of it's not crazy. You know, you should right. collaborate, I think, with the people that even if you don't, you're not normally in communication is reaching out to those people and saying, hey, I don't know what's going on. Can you help? Okay, Jordan. My last question for you today is related to the NCCN guidelines. So I don't know if our listeners know this or not, but Jordan is actually the pharmacist, the only pharmacist on the NCCN panel for the management of immunotherapy related toxicities, which is awesome and a great, a great way that Jordan's advocating for our profession on a national level. So Jordan, as a member of that panel, recognizing that there may be limitations to what you can share, I'm wondering if there's anything on the frontier of the guidelines that we can look forward to, other therapies that have been or are added that we can expect to see, what can you, what can you tell us? Yeah. So, I mean, I am a little bit restricted because there's a confidentiality agreement. I think it's actually kind of comforting to know that the people that sit on the guidelines are required to keep everything that's discussed private because it means that that those decisions are not swayed by outward influences. But at the same time, I think it's good to just kind of know the process that is out there and it, that is transparent. You can go on the NCCN guideline website and see it's been a wonderful opportunity for me to be a part of that. A great honor. I, I don't take it lightly. It is something that basically we have professionals from all walks, disease states, specialists that are specialists, not just in oncology, but also in, you know, disease state management from the IRAE perspective, specific organ systems. And so these people meet periodically and we discuss different data that's new, uh, new developments, new understanding of how to manage IRAEs. And we try to filter through exactly what we were talking about in case series kind of more general management? Are there new things, new ways to approach IRAEs that need to be put uh, in a new way to help it be better understood by not only the people who are the specialists, but also the people in all walks, like those who are rural that we refer to and kind of think, trying to put ourselves in the shoes of those people. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I'll say as the only pharmacist on the guidelines, it's been fascinating to kind of be a part of that process. And, and I think it's important for us to recognize them, how pharmacy plays into that and how important our perspective is on how these things are managed. And so, yeah, I, I can't really say more than that, but I think from my perspective, I think pharmacy has a, a tremendous role to play in toxicity management and supportive care. And um, that's you know kind of been my goal is to try to bring our angle, our perspective of things into the process there. Well, we as a profession, I think I can speak for all of us when I say that we're glad that you are there representing not just us, but also our patients and some of the things that others may not consider when making those decisions. So thank Thanks, you. Tanya. Okay. That's all the time we have today. I want to thank Jordan McPherson for joining us. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. 
don't forget to check out the website, www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash manage IRAE for our webinars, additional podcasts, and online commentaries. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage Podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.